Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, all this summer, or much of this summer anyway, we have been uh, making our way through the book of Psalms. We've been looking at different Psalms together uh, because the Psalms, uh, we've been saying over and over again, is God's prayer book. It's the prayer book that he has given his people. And uh, in the Psalms, two wonderful things happen. First of all, the Psalms give voice to our emotions, to our feelings about things that we're experiencing, and it also gives us language given given to us by God himself on how to deal with those emotions and those feelings. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at different Psalms with different themes, dealing with different issues, suffering, joy and praise, worship, things like this. And today, we are going to look at Psalm 131. Psalm 131, obviously, a short psalm, not very long, not nearly as long as the other ones that we've been looking at uh, together. It is a psalm of David, and it is a psalm of ascent. And you'll remember that psalms of ascent were psalms that the people of God would sing as they were making their way to Jerusalem. If they were on pilgrimage, they would, while they were journeying, they would sing these psalms together. So that's what Psalm 131 is. And let me, let me begin the message by asking you this question. How many of you, and I would like you to raise your hand, just so I can get a bit of a feel for how well-known this is. How many of you have heard about um, a psychological therapeutic Um, technique called mindfulness. You've heard of mindfulness. I thought it would be more. Mindfulness? Come on, it's like all over the interwebs, people. There, now more hands are going up. Oh yeah, now I'm listening. I should put my hand up. Um, So, like I said, it's a psychological technique, mindfulness. Uh, It's very popular in sort of self-help circles, and the reason is, is because it has been found to be quite effective in dealing with anxiety. Um, There's websites devoted to mindfulness. There's uh, mindfulness associations. There's many, many books on mindfulness. In fact, large corporations like Google, Nike, Apple, they actually host mindfulness seminars for their employees so that they can learn these techniques and practices and use them. And in fact, in Ontario at least, and I think in other jurisdictions, Mindfulness practices are being taught in schools, in public schools, elementary and high school. And the reason is, is because we live in a culture and we live in an an era where people are facing heightened anxiety on a scale that is, frankly, it's it's kind of unprecedented uh, in our cultural history. Right now, Anxiety issues or anxiety disorders, these kinds of things, are the number one mental health issue in Canada and the United States, according to a number of pretty reputable uh, associations that I checked for my facts. Um, And it seems to not be going away. It seems to actually just be increasing and getting worse. Worse. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this issue of anxiety and what the Bible has to say about it. We're not going to, this isn't a sermon on mindfulness, although we'll refer to mindfulness uh, a little bit as we carry on, but it's more of a message on anxiety, giving voice to our anxiety and seeing the Bible's cures for our anxieties. But before we begin the actual message, I have to make a couple of qualifiers. Well, the first one is not so much a qualifier, just to say the irony. Ironically, I've had a lot of anxiety about this message. Uh, And the reason is, is because 
this issue of anxiety, and that's a very amorphous term, uh, I understand that, but the issue of anxiety, generally anyway, is, seems to be as prevalent in the church as it is in the culture at large. And so whenever you preach on a subject that you know, uh, sometimes in a very personal way, because I've spoken with some folks here at Grace Valley, openly and honestly about this, you know that they have anxiety issues. You're very, very worried about upsetting them, saying something that offends them, okay? So I, what I ask is that I, will, I have way more notes than I typically do for a sermon, so I'm going to try to be very careful that I say things the right way, but I'm going to also ask that you listen with an open ear and a gracious ear. Meaning, if you hear something that's off to your ear, be open to the Holy Spirit speaking truth to you that you need to hear, but don't want to hear. And also be gracious in knowing that my intentions are not to wrongfully hurt anyone here. You get what I'm saying? So come to me afterwards and say, when you put it that way, that hurt me because X, so that we can work it through if that happens. I will, I've thought a lot, like I said, a lot of anxiety about this message, so I've thought a lot about how to say things, but you all know I can run off at the mouth sometimes without thinking, and so I ask you to be a little bit gracious with me in that regard. So that's the first thing, but the, the first qualifier is this. The issue of anxiety is complex and complicated. There are different kinds of anxiety, some diagnosable, some just sort of general sense of unease kind of, but not di necessarily medically diagnosable, and we cannot deal with every single type of anxiety in one sermon. This one's going to be a little on the longer side already, and we don't want to go too far. Besides, I'm no expert, no I'm not a psychologist, for example, so I'm a pastor trying to speak to this issue. But there, there is one significant cause of anxiety, underlying root to anxiety, that the Bible raises. It's not the only one, but it is a very common one, and it is quite a major one. And so don't dismiss, if, if, if you don't agree with what, I say, don't just dismiss it out of hand, saying that, well, that doesn't explain my situation. The scriptures and, the, and, and Psalm 30, 131, they don't, it, it's not necessarily going to explain everything about anxiety, but it is certainly going to bring clarity to something about anxiety. So that's the first qualifier. The second qualifier is that there are different treatments to anxiety. Mindfulness is a very popular technique and treatment because it is quite effective. There's some dangers with mind mindfulness that I'll raise with, with us as we go along, but it has been helpful for people. Similarly, medication has been helpful for people as they face uh, the issue of anxiety as well. And in some people's situation, it helps tremendously. But the Bible's... If the Bible's diagnosis of anxiety is worth listening to, then therefore the Bible's prescription for anxiety or treatment for anxiety is also worth listening to. And I hope to show you from Psalm 131, it is actually a critical component in addressing the anxiety that many of us face. So what I want you to realize is that other treatments, whether it be mindfulness technique, cognitive behavioral therapy, medication, etc., they may be helpful, but if they are without the Bible's treatment from a Christian perspective, they will be uh, inadequate ultimately because they will be missing an incredibly important component. Other treatments, however in concert with Scripture, so long as the spiritual aspects of anxiety are being addressed, as we'll see in the next few minutes, 
they can be extremely effective. So I don't want anyone here to feel like because they've used medication, because they've gone to cognitive behavioral therapy, because they've used mindfulness techniques, they're not being Christian enough. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, however, if that is all we do and we don't go to the Word and we don't face the spiritual roots of anxiety and we don't allow God through His Word and Spirit to speak to our Word and Spirit, we are actually being reductionistic. We are being reductionistic about human nature because we're saying we're just a bunch of chemicals or we're just a bunch of psychological profiles uh, rather than holistic, that we are both physical and spiritual and psychological and emotional. There's all kinds of aspects to us. And we're being reductionistic about the scope of Scripture in its application to our lives. We're saying, well, this is not an issue that Scripture speaks to. When biblically, Scripture speaks to all of us, all of life, comprehensively. I hope I explained that clearly enough for you as we, as qualifiers, as we get into this. Still anxious. Hopefully by the end, you and I will all be a little less anxious. There is an outline on the back of your bulletin if you want to use that to help us navigate things. Okay, here we go. Um, First, first of all, we have to understand what, what is anxiety? What does it look like, at least? What are the symptoms of anxiety? How do you, some of us maybe have feelings and we don't even know what they are, and it turns out that we might be facing anxiety, but we've never been able to name it. And David, in our passage, he used this beautiful earthly metaphor to describe, in fact, what anxiety is. In verse 2, what does he say? He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. And the, the image that is evoked immediately is a weaned child with its mother. But, but listen, when he invokes this, he's, he's getting us to, under, to think a little bit about what an unweaned child looks like with its mother. And the idea is, anybody who's been a, a, a mother of a very young child knows, that an unweaned child, when, when, especially when they're hungry, of course, and, and, and other times as well, when they are placed on their mother's bosom, they often... Uh, seem agitated, they're rooting around, uh, they're, they're squirming, they're fussy, they're fretful, they're in some kind of turmoil. And David is saying that, that when we are anxious, we experience an inner turmoil. That's why he says uh, in verse 2, he says, like a weaned child my, uh, is my soul within me. Or other translations say, I have quieted my soul. This is the language of being uneasy, of being fearful, of being worried. It's an obsessive concern with something. So, for example, let's say you have a, you're a young person, you have a very important test coming up. It means a lot to your mark, which is going to have an effect on your GPA, which may affect scholarships or something like that. And you are obsessively concerned with how you do on that test. Or maybe you have a relative in your life, there's a, a, a child, a friend, a parent, whomever that, that is struggling, and you are always w wondering about what's happening to them, what are they feeling, what's going on in their lives, what's the next step to helping them. These are, these are thoughts that, that create this cycle within you that, that you simply cannot escape. Now, I am not a particularly worrisome person myself by nature. In fact, when I was younger, people would talk about being stressed or anxious, and I honestly was not able to relate very well at all. The older I've gotten, the more I've worried, I don't know, the more of a worrier I'm becoming, so I don't know if that means the older I get, the less I listen to the Bible, or the older I get, the more I realize that there are things that deserve my attention. But I do remember the first and only anxiety attack that I experienced. I've had one. And the reason I knew that I, I was having an anxiety attack was because I had, as a pastor, had counseled people who had dealt with anxiety disorders and had anxiety attacks, and they described them to me. So when it happened to me, I was like, okay, I think I know what's happening to me. My palms became incredibly clammy. I started struggling to breathe. My heart was racing. There was a tightness in my chest. And, 
and my eyes, I could feel my eyes starting to kind of bulge out. Um, and, and for some, these kinds of experiences are, are relatively common. For me, it was extremely uncommon, and so I freaked out that this was happening to me, which is not apparently a good way to respond because that makes things worse. I could not control these physical responses that were happening to me in the face of a, a significant issue in my life. That's what it feels like for some, of, for some of us. For many of us, it's not quite that extreme, but we may have a real hard time sleeping. Maybe we, we feel like we go through the day with this knot in our stomach constantly, almost like borderline nauseous. Uh, maybe we struggle to eat. This is what David is talking about. Is this an anxiety disorder? It might be, but many of us deal with this. The point is that there is an inner turmoil that sometimes has outer effects. So one psychologist said this, there is a constant mental exhaustion weighing heavily on those struggling with anxiety because their mind never stops going. These intense feelings of worry require a lot of energy to battle. It can be very debilitating. And that is the case for some people who deal with anxiety. But the point is, actually, the opposite. The point is, sometimes you cannot see it. Because it is an inner, inner turmoil. Because it is something happening inside you. Uh, there are people walking among us who deal with anxiety on a regular basis and might be experiencing uh, some extreme measure of anxiety right in your presence. And from, from the physical perspective, you cannot see that that's happening. Because it's internal. I've had people tell me, you know, I was, well, I was having an anxiety attack when we talked about blah, blah, blah. And I was like, really? In that moment? Yes, I was having one. So this is what it looks like. As we look at the cure, we're going to also see the cause, okay? So I'm just trying to describe what anxiety is, particularly for those of us who maybe have little experience with anxiety. This gives us a way into the experiences of those who do face it. That's point number one. Point number two is that, and I'm, I'm simplifying, okay? I wanted to talk a lot about how interesting it is that King David, a man after God's own heart, by the way, who had a deep and profound intimate relationship with God, at some point was dealing with anxiety, significant anxiety, there's a lot to be said about that, but we can't go into it. Just know that if you are that person, you are in good company, and you are not a second-class Christian who is lower on the faith scale. I just want to make sure that that's clear. Second point. David, he found a way out. He found a way out from this experience of anxiety that was constantly hounding him. Again, in verse 2, he says, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And again, because he was quiet inside, he had calmed and quieted his soul, there were outer effects. And I'm sure some of us say that that sounds beautiful. I would love to be in that situation. He had found a cure. How? Well, there's some steps in this psalm that we can evaluate together. The first step to finding freedom from the anxiety that we are facing, according to the Bible, is we need to evaluate the cause. Look at verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Now what this implies is that David spent time looking inward, evaluating himself. You cannot tell if your heart is lifted up, and we'll talk about what that means in a second. You cannot tell that your heart is lifted up if you don't analyze your heart. And so David did that. And he says that a major cause of our anxiety, it was his and it is, it is ours as well, is that our hearts somehow are lifted up. In other translations, it says that my heart is not proud. What David is saying is, is that a major root, a major cause of the anxiety that we face day in and day out is actually pride. Now stay with me, because this is where 
you don't want to agree. I didn't want to agree. It was counterintuitive to me. But listen, I've done a bit of counseling with people who have anxiety, and one of the things uh, that comes up over and over again is that they worry a lot. That's what anxiety is, Andrea. And then they feel guilty about the worrying. And so when I come along and I say, well, you know, the problem is, is that you're proud, that sounds mean. If you've ever sat with someone who is opening their heart about their anxiety and telling you how much they hate it and how, it rules, how much it rules their lives and they are ashen-faced or tear-filled and they are pouring their hearts out to you, the last thing you want to say to them is, well, you know, the problem is, is actually that you're proud. And I'm not suggesting that you lead with that if you're ever in a conversation with someone who's pouring out their hearts over their anxiety with you. However, however, David was a man after God's own heart, don't forget. And a great psychologist by the name of David Powlison, Christian psychologist, he said, look, when God calls a man, a man after his own heart, he is worth listening to. So don't shut out his diagnosis of our anxiety out of hand. He says that pride is often lurking underneath our anxiety. When people describe what they are anxious about, it's very often, almost always, not always, but very often, it's about an unknown future. And their cycle of thinking is about, is fearful because they fixate on this unknown future that they, that they want, frankly, they're afraid about all the things that could go wrong and all the possible negative outcomes of, the, of this unknown future. And basically what they end up doing is they betray that they have a desire to control the outcome. They believe deep down that they know how things ought to turn out or how they want things to turn out, and they are determined to make that a reality. And the Bible says that when we do that, we are expressing pride, an, in fact, an outsized opinion of ourselves, of our knowledge and understanding of how things ought to be. We know what's best, and we want it. And I know this sounds harsh, and you might be thinking, well, that's not me. But you see, Scripture teaches that our natural tendency is to be prideful, which means it's normal for us to want things to work out the way we think they should work out, to want to be in control of our lives and, frankly, often the lives of other people as well because we see them as a source of our anxiety. And so it's no, it's no surprise if you are saying, well, I don't think that's my problem. It's no surprise that that's what you're saying because it makes sense to you to operate this way. That's what Scripture is teaching. And that makes the Bible's diagnosis of our anxiety actually counterintuitive. We think, well, that's not my problem. But listen, this is from a little booklet, and some of my, you know, many of my insights come from him, David Powlison. He's written on anxiety and stress and these kinds of things many, many times. But listen to, listen to this. This is how we think. We don't think it's pride, but it is how we think. Listen to what he says. I just want a little respect and appre appreciation. Of course, I want the home appliances to work and the car mechanic to be honest. That's pretty normal. I want a bit of approval and understanding. Is that too much to ask? I want the church to thrive and my sermon to go well. Nice little dig for ministers there who think that they don't deal with pride. It's for God, after all. I want satisfaction and compensation for the way others did me wrong. I don't want much. If only I had better health, a little more money, a more meaningful job, nicer clothes, and a restful vacation, then I'd be satisfied. I want a measure of success, just a bit of recognition as an athlete or a beauty, an intellectual, a musician, a leader, a mother, I want control. Who doesn't? I want to feel good. Doesn't God want me to feel good? I want to have more self-esteem, more self-confidence to believe in myself. I want, well, I want, I want my way. 
want glory. I want to do my will. You see, pride is just the natural outworking of our desire to have our way. And so often our desires seem so extremely reasonable. I don't want a mansion. I just want enough square feet so that my kids aren't underfoot all the time. I don't want millions of dollars. I just don't want to have to worry about whether or not I can buy the occasional McDonald's meal for my kids and me. I have to fret over every dollar. You see, we, we take our wants and our desires and we turn them into what we see as very reasonable requests and expectations, but, but underneath it all re- re- remains the need to have our way. And the Bible says that's pride, and Psalm 31 says that that's behind a lot of our anxieties. It gets worse, though, you know. Of course, it always gets worse before it gets better. I've heard that somewhere. In, in the second half of verse 1, David says this, My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He says, my eyes are not raised too high, or I do not have haughty eyes. It's a word we don't use all that much anymore, but haughty means basically to look down on others. You see, pride is very often, most often, in fact, comparative. Okay, and, and that comparativeness or comparison mentality actually is a cause of anxiety. You, you, you think about how you measure up to others. Now, haughty is all about looking down on others. King David, I guess, if anybody had a reason to look down on other people, it was probably King David, right? He's king. I mean, he's pretty successful. Uh, and he didn't become king simply because, you know, his daddy was king and his granddaddy was king. He was not a blue blood. God chose him to make him king. Well, hello. He was handsome, the Bible says. He was good at a king. He was a very popular king. He was very rich. And so he had every reason to look down on people. But you see, if you, if you do look down on people, you necessarily also look up on people. You look at the world as kind of like a ladder. And life is kind of like a ladder. And so this issue of pride is going to be a problem not just for people with high self-esteem who who are always thinking too much of themselves. It's also going to be a problem for people with low self-esteem who are looking at the people who have better lives or better attitude, better uh, experiences or or, uh, better positions, often enviously and wishing that it was them. They're going to have the same problem. They're going to deal with pride as well. And maybe you're again saying, well, come on, you know, is this actually a source of pride? I'm not so sure. Well, listen, there is a direct correlation, a direct correlation to the expansion of social media and the rise of anxiety among young adults. That is documented. Now, anybody who's taken psychology and statistics, right away you're thinking, ah, but correlation doesn't mean causation. I know. That's for you. Correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, but come on. The correlation is so tight and it is so close, there's at least reason to suspect that there is causation because what does it do? What does social media do? What does this technological world we live in do? It reinforces the comparative mentality or the comparative lens through which people see life. Facebook... Instagram, Snapchat are dangerous. Now, young people, listen to me. (laughs) I used to say that about myself, young person. Now I say it about, listen. You're rolling your eyes and you're like, oh, another old guy who doesn't like technology and thinks everything is dangerous and you're afraid of the big bad boogeyman in my smartphone and and you think, "But, but listen, that's not true. I consume too much modern technology myself. I admit it. Ask Jessica. She'll tell you. She's on me all the time. But social media in particular, there are study after study after study after study 
not just, you know, some guy writing in teen magazine, but we're talking peer-reviewed studies done in serious journals that are demonstrating that that overuse of much of this media actually contributes to heightened anxiety because it pushes this comparative mentality way of thinking. Did you know that many tech leaders, these are the people who invented this stuff, living in California, don't allow their children to use it, especially their younger children. Uh, a man by the name of Christopher Anderson, he used to be the uh, editor of Wired magazine. Now he is the proprietor of Geek Dad, which is a, a website. He said that on a, on a scale or a spectrum between candy and crack cocaine, social media is closer to crack cocaine. And just this week, I was reading an article in the Huffington Post, which is no Christian publication, okay? The Huffington Post, written by a 27-year-old woman who was studying the sharp increase in young women, teen women and 20-something women who have decided to go into convents in the Catholic Church, who have converted to Catholicism and have chosen a life in convents. She was studying what had caused that, and, and what she had concluded was, was that, that the emphasis on social media that young girls uh, were having was contributing so much to their anxiety that they had to make a radical break from that world and they were escaping to the convents for it. And listen to what she writes. This is just a, she talks about Rachel. Rachel is beautiful. But she didn't get much pleasure out of her crushes. As a teenager, she posted cryptic song lyrics online and then spent hours parsing the replies like a biblical scholar. Why had that boy from math class used two exclamation points instead of one? Three Y's in his hey. Now, we're chuckling, and on one level, it deserves a chuckle. But this is actually happening. Worrying about did that Snapchat get responded to in time? What does it mean that there was a bit of a delay? Worrying about what was said in the Snapchat. What, what, how come the picture is this way and not that way? You can interpret things over and over and over again, which creates a tremendous amount of anxiety. And if we're going to overcome, we have to face and evaluate and be honest about it. And all I'm saying, I say young people, but I mean, there's people my age who are into this too. All I'm asking you is not look at me like some old guy who hates technology and dismiss it and then carry on with your certainty that what you're doing has no negative effects on you when you're 14 or 15 or 16 or 21 or, or 28. You're, you're young. Enough of that. We've got to do an evalu honest evaluation. That's the first thing, okay? Now, this is different from mindfulness. Remember I said mindfulness is very helpful, and the reason I'm bringing up mindfulness is because it is so popular right now, and uh, I don't want to sound like another Christian pastor just poo-pooing a secular technique and saying it's all bad, and you should just read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll feel better. Mindfulness is helpful. It has its place. In fact, when people are fretting over the future, one of the problems is, is that they struggle to be in the present. Okay? And part of regulating our emotions, thanks to psychology, we've learned that part of re regulating our emotions is being able to stay in the present because that's all you can deal with. You can only deal with what's happening in the here and now. You cannot deal with what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or a month from now. And this is what mindfulness is very, very helpful with. It, asks, it, it encourages you to, to just consider the present. Attend to your breathing. Attend to how you're feeling. Observe how you're feeling. 
And when you do that, you actually gain a bit of distance from those emotions, and then you can start to discern patterns and identify triggers. And it's very helpful for people. But here's the thing. One cardinal rule of mindfulness is that you're never, never, never allowed to judge your feelings. It's non-judgmental awareness of the present. And that's where the Bible and mindfulness would disagree radically. David says you must evaluate them because they're very often connected to sin. Pride is sin. Your emotions, if they're rooted in pride, they're sinful emotions. But here's the thing. If you're willing to do that, you can take the next step. This is point B. David encourages us to repent of pride and reorient our hearts. Again, he says, he says something really weird. He says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And when you first read that, you're thinking to yourself, what, was he planning to invade Egypt? And he realized, you know, there's just, Israel, we're pretty awesome, but we can't be Egypt. So I'm just going to shelve that plan. No. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about unrealistic ambitions. If anxiety is connected to an unknown future, and we have this cycle of worrying about worst-case scenarios, and we want to control the future, what David is doing is, is he's saying, I lay that down. I don't go after things too great for me or too difficult for me. In other words, things that I cannot even begin to understand. Can you honestly say, you know what has to happen? If you just stop and think about it. I, I thought about myself. I mean, I, I got a guy, I'm a guy with problems, just like everybody else. And as I think of my problems, whether they're family problems or work problems or whatever, I think the anxiety comes when I think I know what's supposed to happen. I know what's supposed to happen with this church. We're supposed to grow to X by X and get in our own building by Y and have three pastors by Z. I know. Well, what do I really know, honestly? Life is so complicated. The needs of the people in my life around me who I love very, very dearly, and maybe I know them very, very well, what they really need, do I really know what they really need? I think I have an idea of what might be good for them, but when I cross into the realm of I know what they really need, I am starting to play the role of God. And David says, lay that down. It's too difficult for you. You weren't built to ever carry that kind of burden. David is saying, look, I'm not God. I know my place. And I'm okay with that. I've used this example before, so uh, some of you might be familiar with it, but here's a little kid, five, six years old, goes into the mall with their mom or their dad, and they're holding hands, and mom says, hold on to my hand, stay with me, because otherwise, you know, I'll lose you, and that'll cause trouble. And the kid says, we've been to this mall before. I'm going to the arcade. I know exactly what I want. And so they're in one of those department stores, and they sneak around one of the racks of the clothing, and shoot, they take off, because they got a toonie in their pocket, and they want to get an ice cream, or they want to get a... Uh, play a video game or something, and boom, off they go. And they run down the hallway, and they go, I know, the, the arcade is just around the corner here. And they turn the corner, bah, no arcade. And they go, okay, wait a minute, it's the other way. Ha, 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 I forgot, it's the other way. And they go the other way, and they come around the corner, and bah, it's not there. Now they go, mm, well, I thought it was there, but okay. There's one more, I said this way. Okay, so up there they go, and they turn the corner, and bah, it's not there. And now they're freaking out. Because they thought they knew they were certain they had it straight. And then they discovered that they don't know what they know and they realized that they're not equipped to walk around this big mall all by themselves. But now they've pulled themselves away from their heavenly father who was their security, who was the one who did know. Oh, sorry, they're not their, no. their mom or their dad, who was their security, was the one who did know. And now that's where the anxiety comes from. And David's basically saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. You know, here's a silly example. Some of you, it'll be useful for. Some of you, probably not at all. But if you've ever watched Parks and Recreation, 
There's a character on that show named Chris Traeger who's absolutely hilarious, played by Rob Lowe. And he is an exercise fanatic. And the reason he's an exercise fanatic is, is because he is afraid of death. And he wants to live as long as possible. And so he exercises constantly. And he wants to avoid getting sick. But what ends up happening is, is he ends up becoming a hypochondriac. And he's terrified of getting sick at every turn. He won't shake hands with people. He wants to wear a mask all around town. He's forever going on another juice cleanse. Because he is obsessed with controlling his physical health for the future to the point where it now controls him and he's an anxious person all the time. Pick your poison, son. David repents of that. He humbled himself. We, we heard from 1 Peter 5 before, but let's hear it again. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6 says, Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast your, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Listen, the Bible is utterly realistic. The Bible knows there's things you worry about. There's stuff in your life that gets you freaked out. The Bible knows that. It knows about our frailty. It knows about our weakness. It knows about our pride. But notice what it says. Humble yourself, then cast your cares. You cannot cast your cares on the Lord if you're not humbling yourself. Because what you're doing is, is if you're still holding on to your pride, if you still want to control the future, when you go to the Lord, you're not humbling yourself and casting your cares on Him and saying, deal with it. You're going to Him with your demands and saying, here's how I expect things to go. I'm still in the driver's seat. Your job is to make it happen. But when we humble ourselves, we say, I'm not in the driver's seat. What do I really know? I'm going to walk by faith. You can literally cast. Do you know, casting your cares on God means throwing them off of yourself and onto Him. You can give up that control. That's what David did. In verse 3, what does he say? He says, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. This is beautiful. Stick with me here. I know it's been a while, but this is just, what an incredible insight the Bible has. David uses that word hope in the Lord. And this is the third step in the prescription for anxiety, bringing your anxieties to God. Hope is future-oriented just like anxiety is. I never had seen that before. Hope is as future-oriented as anxiety is. It's a desire for something good in the future, just like anxiety is a desire for something good in the future. And David put his hope in the Lord. In other words, he put his hope in God's control of the future because he's almighty, he's sovereign, he actually can force things to happen when we can't. But when it says that he puts his hope in the Lord, he's not just putting his hope in God's ability to control things, he's putting his hope in God's character that God is trustworthy, that God is reliable, that God is faithful, that God is true. It's the same thing Jesus does in Matthew 6 when he says, do not worry about tomorrow. He says, look at the birds of the air, look at the flowers as they grow. They're not worried about tomorrow because your heavenly Father cares for them because he is trustworthy and faithful and reliable and he cares for you too. Jesus was sent by the Lord to live for you. He was, he was in heaven, clothed in majesty, free from, from, from being touched by any of the corruption or the sin of this world, and he willingly clothed himself in humanity, gave up the glory of his throne, and lived like you and me so that he could be touched by sin, so that he could be reviled, so that he could be mocked, so that he could be spit upon, so that he could be hurt, so that he could be nailed to a tree. He went through all that and, and died on the cross for your sin and for my sin. Just think about the oceans he swam, the mountains he climbed in order to rescue you and make you his, his own. It is utter foolishness to think that he will abandon us now, but that's what we do when we're anxious. You think he's going to abandon us now? You've got to be kidding me. And 
most marvelously in doing that, <laughs> he actually did guarantee the future. We've been talking about anxiety being rooted in our need to control an unknown future. Well, you know what? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and only if you are a believer and in and follower of Jesus Christ, the future is not unknown. It is completely and utterly certain. Somehow David got a glimpse of that. Do you notice that he says, hope in the Lord from this time and forevermore? Jesus is talking to his disciples in John 14. He's in the upper room. He's been having this long discourse. He's telling them, I'm going to die. It's going to look really dark. You're not going to understand it. You think it's, I'm abandoning you and you're, I'm leaving you. And it's, it's, it's just horrible to your ears to hear what, what I have to go through. I understand that. But then he says to them in John 14, he says, he's talking about their eternal future. And he says, do not worry. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Last thing. The Bible's realism about anxiety. I wasn't sure what to call this one, but it's a reminder about process, okay? If you go to verse 2, again, it says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. It's this picture of a child that's been weaned, right? It's on its mother's breast and it's satisfied, it's content, it's at peace, it's sleeping deeply. Boy, wouldn't we like that? Probably no knot in its stomach. It's not going to a bed, going to laying down in bed with a mind that begins to spin and whir like a machine rolls on and on no matter how hard I try to turn it off. Be reminded here, David's condition is not an instant fix. It's not a quick solution. A child is not weaned overnight. A mother doesn't go, well, that's enough of that. Now we're going to give you other food. It takes time. We live in a culture that really wants us to fix things fast. And that's one of the things that makes anxiety medication sometimes very, very attractive because it deals with symptoms and it, and it has a, often a very, very quick uh, uh, effect on us. But understand, that deals with symptoms, not with causes. And there may be a major place for that in your life as you're addressing your anxiety, that you have medication to help deal with symptoms. But don't, 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 don't neglect the causes. Don't neglect God's word. Don't neglect this psalm. It will take time. But if you read this psalm, and other passages in Scripture like it, if you write it down, if you visualize it, if you meditate on it, if you sing it, if you personalize it, if you make it your own, your own song to sing. David gave this psalm to the church to sing. He gave it to you 3,000 plus years ago. He gave it to you and said, sing this. I know what it's like. But God has inspired me to write this down for you to sing. Sing this. And go ahead and listen to the mindfulness experts. Slow down, breathe, observe your feelings, etc. Those are all good ideas, but go further. Evaluate. In light of what Scripture says is true about God, about Jesus, about reality. Did you know this beautiful hymn that's becoming more and more precious to more and more of us as we become familiar with it, Be Still My Soul, this is a meditation on Psalm 131. And I love how verse 2 puts it for those of us who deal with anxiety. Be still, my soul, that God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. 
Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. All now mysterious. I don't get it. I don't understand it. It looks bad, but it shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. The waves and winds remember the voice of Jesus as he walked across the sea and as he calmed the storm from that little fishing boat. They still remember. And the waves and winds in your life will retreat as you cry out to the name of Jesus, your Savior. Let's pray. Father, maybe I'm a little less anxious at the end of this message because it's done. But I pray that my own calm and quiet and, and the calm and quiet that any, anyone here who shares that with me now is because you have spoken to my soul with your word. Father, help us all to repent of the prideful need to control situations and determine the outcome. Help us to have the humility to know that we are not you and that thankfully you are. You love us even to the point of death but also to the point of resurrection. May we trust in that. And may we make real strides uh, against the anxieties we face. We know it won't happen overnight. But as we look back over our lives, may we see how you have worked to overcome our anxiety by your grace in us, chipping away at it with your love over weeks and months and years, and may we praise you for it in Jesus' name.